0: Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. I first learned about Sarika Tandon when I attended a webinar series organized by Antioch University. In the particular webinar she was leading, it was about race and the environmental movement, history and legacies. That presentation blew my mind because it provided so much more context to the history of conservation and the environmental movement in America. At that time, I also decided that I wanted to ask Sarika if she would be interested in being a guest. Guess what? She said yes. The other reason I was really excited to speak with Sarika is because there aren't very many South Asians who I can look up to who are dedicated to racial justice in the environmental movement. Sarika attended UC Berkeley with an intention of getting a degree in English and ended up graduating with dual degrees in peace and conflict studies and conservation and resource studies. She tells a really interesting story of how this came to be. After that, Sarika found herself passionate about working to achieve food sovereignty. She found her calling working at a local organic farm and loved being outdoors. Unfortunately, not too long after, she was diagnosed with Lyme disease, which significantly impacted her ability to work in the outdoors as she wanted. Later, she worked for several years with her partner to build a natural medicine company. She was again able to pursue her twin interests in social and environmental justice while earning a master's degree in advocacy for social justice and sustainability from Antioch University. These days, Sarika is a consultant who works with big green organizations to assess their racial inequities and help them undo some of the disparities within their organizational design and even project implementation. We talk about the history of race in America and how it impacts the environmental movement and what she's doing to work with her clients to address, as she calls it, the mythology of white supremacy and how it manifests in these organizations. We also talk about her vision for change, advice she has for others who want to pursue a similar path and how to stay steadfast on this path. I absolutely loved this conversation, like I do with all of my guests. And with each conversation, I become more hopeful and optimistic about the possibility of change. I was especially uplifted after talking to Sarika. Her energy is just amazing, and I hope you feel it too. Thank you again for making time, Sarika, to, to speak with us on Breaking Green Ceilings. Typically, we start with this first question, which is, how did you develop your passion for the natural environment?
1: Well, the first thing that I remember is I had two best friends in high school, and one of them, her dad was a passionate hiker and mountain climber, and he took it upon himself to take the three of us to the Adirondack Mountains. And he taught us how to rock climb when we were about 17 wow. years old and he took us on long camping trips and just having that immersion in the woods and learning to love and enjoy nature from someone who spent most of their free time doing that was a wonderful introduction to enjoying nature.
0: That's great. So what was that like rock climbing and how old were you all at that time?
1: So we were all 17, and it was just such a positive and empowering experience to be young women doing something daring and a little bit scary in a safe, supportive environment with people who were just there to just cheer us on and were excited to share this sport with us or this experience. And that's not mm-hmm. something I would have necessarily gotten with my own family. That wasn't what we were doing on <laughs> the weekend. But it felt like a powerful sort of girl power moment in my development as a young woman.
0: Why do you think you didn't have as much experiences with your own family as far as like interaction with natural spaces or the outdoors is concerned?
1: I remember going camping with my family, but it wasn't as high of a priority. as It wasn't as much in our family culture habits. Yeah, Yeah, it was a little bit more of a distant relationship with nature.
0: It makes me curious because I guess that we've had so far, each one of them has a very unique and experience with nature growing up and it's quite diverse just all across the spectrum. So I'm just always kind of curious to compare and contrast, I guess. So you didn't have very many experiences with nature, but that one moment with your friends, rock climbing was empowering. So how then did that kind of experience translate into your decision to pursue a profession in the environmental space? And maybe it didn't. Maybe there were other life-changing moments in your life that kind of sparked that curiosity.
1: Yeah, there were definitely other moments. I remember having my first environmental awakening when I was 12 years old. It was Earth Day, 1990. And I was reading the newspaper and... I got all the information they were sharing and internalized it immediately and was like, we need to do something about all of this. It was more of an intellectual connection with nature maybe before then. And then I, as I got older, I started to have more experiences in nature that committed me further. And I remember being really into art in high school and being like, the trees are dancing. Like, So there was um, an almost like a spiritual connection to right. nature. And then when I got to my undergraduate university at Berkeley, I ended up taking an environmental studies course in my first semester and it was like locked in immediately. I was, it was so exciting and interesting and I felt so passionate about it. And then I continued to have experiences. I was organizing for Calper, I got to work with elementary school students doing city gardening and every experience I had just kept affirming that this is a beautiful path and this work is really important and it brings It's about our survival, but it also brings like a sense of connection and a sense of hope and beauty into the world. And all of those Mm -hmm. things just kept affirming each other. Yeah.
0: When we spoke previously, you talked about how you ended up taking that environmental studies course. And I thought it was a very interesting and uplifting story. And do you mind
1: resharing that? Sure, absolutely. So (laughs) I went to UC Berkeley as an out-of-state student. And so somehow that translated, and this is a... University, I think at the time they had between 30 and 40,000 students. And we did all of our registration by telephone and I had the last registration (laughs) window. And going into being 18 years old and leaving home, I was like, I want to be an English major. But I couldn't get into any of those entry-level English classes because I was in the last registration slot. Uh, mm-hmm. But the environmental, Intro to Environmental Studies and Intro to Peace and conflict Studies were both open. Also things I was interested in. And that first semester I took those classes, they changed my life and I decided to major in both of those fields. And I did. I graduated with degrees in both of those. So I'm grateful to have been at the end of the
0: registration. Yeah. It was like Mother Earth was calling you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to sabotage her curriculum. (laughs) (laughs) For me, it's a very uplifting story. So thank you for sharing that. So you decided you wanted to pursue English and you ended up graduating also with a degree in environmental studies. How did your family take that? Were they supportive? Were they curious? What were their reactions?
1: Yeah, I think my parents were hoping I would be either a doctor or a lawyer or an MBA. Right. They're like, you have great people skills. Okay, you don't have to be a computer scientist. But they were deeply concerned that I would never have health insurance, that I would not make a living wage, that I wouldn't be able to support a family. It wasn't a traditional career path that they were familiar with. and it. Right. I mean, even in this country, it's not a super traditional career path. So I think they were really looking out for my long-term economic well-being so they saw this choice as a threat to that and they tried really hard to talk me out of it my parents are both immigrated from India and my dad's an engineer my mom's a chemist my dad worked for xerox my mom worked for codex so what they were familiar with was the sciences technical fields corporate america and it just felt like a really unsafe choice to them. So we had a lot of really interesting conversations and I remember my dad giving me like a newspaper article about the lowest paid (laughs) profession. We like a circle highlighted like, at one point I wanted to be an environmental educator. And And at that point, I didn't care. Like, I was like, this is my passion. None of that scared me, but it was a source of tension for some time.
0: Right. Yeah. That's really funny. Now it's funny. I'm sure at that point you were probably like, uh, what the hell? (laughs) Not cool. Why can't you just be supportive? Yeah. But you persevered. And I feel like I can relate to that because pursuing sort of like an environmental degree was an equivalent of pursuing art, (laughs) which completely, not to say that, Art is bad or anything like that, but like in the minds of most South Asian parents, that is just a whole unknown world, and that you're most likely going to end up on the streets, just you know, (laughs) with a a paintbrush and some paint.
1: So (laughs) there's like a hierarchy, right, of what will earn you respect in South Asian culture, and I was choosing something that was not going to necessarily earn me respect and possibly would earn me. Not disdain, but suspicion.
0: Right. Oh my gosh, I just had a random story that came to me. So one of my friends, he's Indian and we did an internship together in India, but he was graduating from Cornell with a degree in sustainable international development. But he had an environmental background, particularly in forestry. And so around that time, we were having conversations about proposals. And I was like, oh, so what kind of proposals are you getting? You know, with the whole arranged marriage stuff, he was open to it. So he wasn't being forced. And, you know, he was progressive enough where he was also making sure that the women that he was talking to as prospects were also open to the idea of an arranged marriage. Anyway, so he's like, oh, you know, because I'm an environmentalist or my degree's in forestry, I'm definitely not getting any doctors <laughs> i'm just getting teachers and i was like oh my gosh that is ridiculous that and it speaks to what you were saying yeah. in terms of like the socioeconomic hierarchy is kind of at the bottom of the rung. <laughs> anyways that's the complexity of uh, south asian culture so Absolutely. i totally relate to that and so When you got your degree in environmental studies, what was your vision for your future? What did you think it would look like and what did you do to
1: kind of build that future? Yeah, I had a very clear vision. I was going to get my PhD, and I think part of that was wanting to like fit in with my people, <laughs> like earn their like
0: effects. prove your credibility,
1: yeah. right? Like I'm as smart as a doctor, not a real doctor, but yeah. a doctor, <laughs> I'm a doctor of environmental studies. And yeah. I was really interested in food systems at that time, sustainable and organic agriculture. So I wanted to create some kind of organic working farm that could demonstrate that these systems work, and then have a pleasure of being a part of the food system because I've been doing a lot of work on organic farms over the summer, which my parents were also a little disturbed about. Like, now you're a farmer. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) We moved here so you could become a farmer. And I was going to be a professor who taught about it as well. So then I was going to meet my sort of obligations around status. And I was also really just passionate about it. And I loved learning. I loved research. So I thought I could put those together and have that lifestyle. And then right after college, within six months, I contracted a really serious case of Lyme disease. And Mm -hmm. all of my ideas, I was like, Uh, just the needle pulled off the record. I was really sick, very physically debilitated. And all of these ideas I had about the physical aspect of participating in sustainable agriculture. And even being in graduate school, I tried to go back to school during that period twice. I dropped out of to um, a PhD program and a master's program in the space of a few years. And I really had to, I had to stop everything that I built my identity around and my planned my future around was not possible yeah. at the time. So that was a very interesting interruption. And interestingly enough, I was living in a tent in the forest, which was my romantic dream of connecting with nature. I was working with children, connecting them with nature. And that's when I contracted this illness. From nature yeah. so unpacking the layers of that was has been interesting so
0: what were some of the i guess overarching conclusions from that experience
1: as my brother said to me maybe you just got bit by a tick like just... <laughs> <laughs> you never sent me in a different direction that's all i can say yeah it wasn't to continue it wasn't my kismet So I had to stop. Everything had to stop. And I ended up working with my partner. We were building a natural medicine company and doing that work for about five years. And then when I was well enough to consider going back to school, I went back to grad school. I got a degree in environmental studies, but this time with a strong social justice focus. And that sort of led me on the path I'm on now.
0: Yeah. I just realized that there have been sort of two pivotal moments in your life. One is that one environmental studies course that you found yourself in and then Lyme disease. Yes. But you've always found your way back to the environment or being an advocate for the environment, which says a lot in terms of again, perseverance. Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned that you got your master's then in environmental studies, but with a focus on social justice and sustainability. And that was at Antioch University. How did you go about choosing that area of, of study in terms of looking at the intersection between social justice and sustainability, environmental sustainability?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've always had a deep concern for social justice and sort of peace work And I wanted to find a place where I could explore both of those things at the same time. And I don't think I knew exactly where that would lead me or what it meant or what I was getting into. Right. But it's just such a strong value that I wanted to center that. And I remember meeting with the person who created this program and being like, so what is this? And he's like, well, there's a class called Diversity, Justice, and Inclusion and a class called Organizing for Social Change. <laughs> and those are the two like core pieces of this curriculum. And I was like, I cannot think of... Anything I would rather spend my time doing than studying those topics. And that it was just such a clear yes feeling. And you know, I'm more on the social science side of things. So I was never like a technical environmental scientist. I was always interested in the social aspect of that work. And yeah, just really wanting to live into my values.
0: Right. And I kind of reflected when you were working on the organic farm and wanted to focus on sustainable food systems. So That really speaks to the social justice side of things. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you: when you were healing from Lyme disease, you were with your parents. Did your parents happen to take an opportunity to try to deter you at that point as well?
1: (laughs) Well, I think because I couldn't do some of the more physical things, like I wanted to do a bunch of on-the-ground training in organic agriculture. So, yeah, they were really supportive when I was like, "Well, I could go to grad school," because right, you're just sitting in a. A desk or a chair doing research, it's not very physical. So they were relieved to see me doing something, credentialing myself.
0: And so, what were some of the highlights of your master's program at Antioch? Well,
1: to be in a space where using a social justice lens was validated and encouraged and supported was was Mm -hmm. a very transformative experience for me. And I think when I first got there, I was like, oh, this feels different. Mm -hmm. Like, I I didn't feel comfortable in the environment and i had been living in Vermont for about five or six years. So I had been in sort of a Northern New England environment, which my grad school was also in Northern New England. And I was so used to being in places like Berkeley and India and Jamaica and Ecuador and all these places where brown and black people were doing the work and in the movement and loving the earth together, that I didn't realize that the profession as experienced in the United States of being an environmental advocate or NGO worker or academic, I didn't realize about the demographics skew in a sort of embodied way until I got to that program. So a lot of the time I was studying there, I was in a bit of a crisis around recognizing what the movement was about, what the history was, who it was for, and who was showing up for it, and who was left out. Mm -hmm. Quite a shock. I had gone all those years without seeing that
0: before. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And as you were talking, I was trying to remember about experiences that I had as far as like diversity and inclusion goes in profession and my experiences in academia. I guess for me, I didn't question it because I was an immigrant. And then also I was constantly told that South Asians don't do this type of stuff. So again, I wasn't surprised that I was the only person of color getting this degree. And there were a lot of international students in my undergrad, but none of them really pursued those degrees. Again, it was just biology, accounting, that type of stuff. And I think it was only later on in my life after I got into like the American workforce where I did notice more of the lack of diversity. And again, just like you, I had an opportunity to work in Kenya and and India. So I mean, there, it's just all black and brown people, right? It's nothing out of the norm. In fact, when you do see a white person, you're like, hey, what are you doing here? (laughs) And so what were the conversations like once you made this realization that you were kind of one of few or probably the only one working on social justice issues that I think resonate more with like black and brown communities?
1: I mean, first of all, there are a lot of people doing this work, as you know, and right. you are uplifting. So I think it was almost like I got a second unofficial master's degree that I don't have papers for in race relations. Right. And justice, like, <laughs> I just ended up doing a ton of work trying to understand and contextualize my experience. And a lot of that I was able to do as part of my master's requirements for sure but it was this understanding it at the internalized interpersonal institutional and structural levels i had to study race and race relations and the history of that in the united right. states to contextualize and make meaning out of my experience so it opened up this huge quest for me which is you know basically taken over my entire life at this point right and i my advisor who used to joke like, why are you asking me? I have all dominant group memberships so of like white, middle-class, heterosexual male who's like the director of his graduate program. But he had a strong analysis and was incredibly supportive and affirming. And so when I'd be like, I feel uncomfortable, like this feels really uneasy for me. He was like, yes it's normal that you feel that way. That's a very natural, like even being able to share that impression and to be supported on that level and affirmed a really big thing for me. I don't think I'd ever had an experience like that before to be validated in my experience of whether it was microaggressions or feeling invisible or my various experiences that I had.
0: Right. So what advice would you give to people who have similar experiences in academia?
1: my advice would be to find your people because if you're feeling it other people are feeling it too and finding solidarity and support and care from other students of color or if there's other reasons that you feel othered in the system finding people both within the system and outside of the system who can hold your truth and affirm your reality and your worth and to stay strong i think sometimes we need to stay and sometimes we need to go also right And I had to make that choice. I really questioned whether I needed to stay in the movement or whether I need to go. And I decided to stay. But also for folks who are struggling with that, it's okay to ask that question. Right. It's a healthy place for me. Is this where I'm going to be able to shine and do my work?
0: Yeah, that's such a great point is know that you have an option to leave and there are people that do leave. So what made you decide to stay then where you felt like you could really be an agent of change in that? had the stamina to continue on.
1: Yeah, that's such a great question. I think there's two pieces for me. One was my deep love and care for the environment and recognizing that if voices like mine were not in the movement, what was going to happen? Mm. And then the second was recognizing my power and the power in my perspective and in my critique and in my vision and to be like, okay, I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay in the environmental field And it was like a commitment or a dedication. I will commit myself completely and utterly to uplifting the interests, the brilliance, and the vision of communities of color to talk about and shine light on the erasure and invisibility of these communities in the movement and to do something to try to fix it. Because I think there's a lot of good we could do if there's more solidarity and inclusion in the movement and more of an emphasis on racial justice. And I feel like I'm one of the people who's poised to support that. So I just made that commitment and here I am, I'm still here. Yeah,
0: and you are a consultant in it and I'd love to talk to you some more about it, but I'm still interested in the race relations aspect of your work. How did that, for those who are in the environmental movement who didn't necessarily think about how race relations impacts their work, what's a quick one oh one that you would give them to... of make them curious and want to get on this path to learn more about the history and legacy of race and the environmental movement? I usually have like four
1: key points (laughs) (laughs) that I teach about when I'm working with groups and the first is that so some of the founding fathers of the environmental movement were white supremacists and so they were also great advocates and champions of conservation so their vision was to preserve nature. And if you really look at who they were serving and who they were supporting, it was for white people, it was for upper-class white people. They had other plans around excluding people of color and Jews from immigrating into the United States. They had visions around eugenics, around all sorts of sort of evil schemes. And I'm talking about like Teddy Roosevelt, Madison Grant, working together on some things there. Was uh, John Muir part of that? I I put John Muir in a different category as someone who was just garden variety racist, but not like a, not like a genocidal sort of schemer. Like he, you know, yeah. he didn't like Mexicans. He didn't like Native Americans. He didn't like Black people. He said disparaging things about, about all of those groups But he, I think he was more focused on conservation. He didn't have like a, mm-hmm. other all schemes that I'm aware of, but that I sort of put them on a spectrum between Muir and Madison Grant one yeah. a genocidal strategist and me are just being racist. So like none of them want we're creating these spaces for people like me. Right. Or the black community or the the Latin right. like that that was never their vision. And so when people are asking why are people of color coming to the national parks, it's like there's a residue in the air. Those spaces don't feel safe to a lot of people. There's so much history around trauma in, in outdoor spaces that, that really intersect mm-hmm. with racial violence, things like that. So anyways, I always talk about like, hey, guess what? You're the fathers that you celebrate. Their framed pictures are up in your halls. These guys were racist. They didn't like us. They didn't want us around. Another piece I always talk about is like the disproportionate burden of environmental toxicity, pollution, climate change faced by communities of color. And then interestingly, I think a lot of people think that white people care about the environment more in the U.S., but a lot of opinion and poll surveys show that communities of color have a greater concern around climate change and the environment, which makes sense because many communities of color are most impacted. Mm -hmm. And then the fourth thing I always like to point out is if you look at the environmental sector and who is working there, who is running the organizations, who's on the boards, and a huge thank you to Dorceta Taylor for her research and her leadership in really putting strong data behind this. People of color are incredibly underrepresented. And if you compare it to the science and technology field, it's like a shocking level of underrepresentation or if you compare it to how much of the U.S. population we are. So there's like something going on. And I think the answer to a lot of that is structural racism. Right. So
0: I've, had some of these conversations uh, specifically on social media on Instagram because other guests who've come on people of color have expressed similar experiences in terms of their exclusion from outdoor spaces and we did put out a post on the racist history of U.S. national parks and that got a lot of attention I wasn't expecting it at all because we had this conversation previously with a former superintendent with California Parks. He'd been Cal Parks for like 30 years and he talked about the racist history of how national parks were formed. He talked about institutional racism in the national park system as well as state park system. So we put out a post on this in the past and I don't know what I think because, you know, of the Black Lives Matter movement and this research or this increased conversation about race issues in the U.S. is what really caught people's attention to it. But we did include information on Muir and how he did hold racist ideas or towards Native Americans, Black people, Mexicans. And we got so many reactions, like most of them were like, thank you, we had no idea. Others were like, you guys are just, why don't you just put this in the past and move on? Or Muir wasn't a racist. He wanted to conserve the land so that it wasn't getting developed. And Roosevelt was an upstanding man. I don't know what you guys are talking about. And that was then a reflection to me that there are people who are so resistant to having these ideologies be challenged. Because this is, I mean, like you said, they've been called the fathers of conservation for centuries, right? So why do people react that way?
1: And what do you say in response? Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, and I've experienced this too as an environmentalist, like we have an identity that we're the good guys, right? Right. We have the moral high ground. We are trying to save the earth for everybody. Right. So to puncture that is a new experience for people who haven't critically looked in the mirror around um, some of the failings of the environmental movement. So some of that reaction, that defensiveness is... Is around wanting to maintain an identity of being the good guy, and not mm-hmm. wanting to trouble or complexify that. I don't know, complexify the And so, and then the other thing is the literature on weight fragility has really helped me understand when people have a bad reaction to something I'm saying when what I'm saying is a historical fact, like it's it's in the literature, it can be verified. Is to understand that. When people hear things that they don't want to hear, they can be defensive, they can attack, they can start crying, to do whatever they can to reassert the equilibrium that they want to have inside of themselves. And that is is actually a racialized response. So for me, just in caring for myself, when I get those reactions, it helps me to be like, oh, okay, this person is having a fragility reaction or this person is being defensive. It's not actually about me. It's about how what I just shared made them feel and how they're trying Mm. to make that go away. And then something I try to do when I teach or train around these issues is to just offer historical information from other sources. So like I can say John Muir was a racist, and it sounds like an opinion, but if I'm able to sort of back that up with statements he said and define what racism is, then people can draw their own conclusions. And I do think there are people who are not ready to hear it, and I don't waste my energy on that. Arguing back usually just creates some sort of escalation of energies, but perhaps that person who had that reaction, they're hearing it for the first time from you, but then they're going to hear it again from another source and the seventh or eighth time they hear it, it's going to normalize for them and they're going to incorporate that into their reality that Not only was this guy racist, but it's okay to talk about it. It's important to talk about it, and what do we do with it? So I have hope that all of us who are telling these stories, the cumulative impact for folks who are really resistant right now will change the conversation, just as it's been stunning over the past two months to see how, as a society, we're talking about anti-Blackness and structural racism. Like It's like, everyone seems fluent in this language, and they're not. That there's... Right. But the fact that they're using terminology Talking about white supremacy so openly in so many spaces, the difference between six months ago and now is stunning. And, and unfortunately, it took the tragic losses of many lives and you mm-hmm. know, this, this look again at police brutality against Black people to get us there. But we're contributing to a tipping point around consciousness change by telling these stories. And if someone's not ready to hear it, that's on them.
0: <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I was expecting when I put out the post. I... I guess I wasn't expecting much of a reaction, but getting those type of reactions of pushback and denial, for the most part, I guess I was very strategic about who I would engage with. Yeah. Some people just had really extreme reactions. I was like, oh, sounds like there's no opportunity there than to even have a dialogue. But in some cases, people were like, I don't know, they came around and I was surprised or shocked when they said that, okay, I realized that I may have been biased because I've looked up to John Muir my whole life. And now to hear this other side of his story and like I provided the article from the New Yorker and just quotes from his journal entries. I mean, that's when people were like, all right, okay, I, I guess like you were saying, providing historical facts. I think does help to a certain extent with the conversation, but some people are just really stuck in their ways. So you have to be very mindful about how much energy you put into that for sure.
1: I think that's right.
0: Yeah. Really struggled with that in the beginning though. (laughs) So as a consultant, you work with environmental organizations to kind of undo the history of exclusion, I guess, of people of color within the environmental movement. How has that manifested in your work as far as, you know, the intersection of race, equity and environmental issues is concerned?
1: Well, I think a lot of green organizations are, are starting to ask these questions about who's at the table, who's not at the table. Now we're like, we need a different table. Like, We need to just yeah. rethink how we're doing all of this. So I think there's an interest That's greater than it's ever been in addressing some of these discrepancies. And I think the Green 2.0 report that came out, I'm trying to remember if it was 2016 or 2017, really just documented it in a way that was irrefutable. So the folks that I work with usually internally have a strong race equity lens and are trying to kind of operationalize that in their work. Mm-hmm. That's not common in the environmental field, so I'm really interested in partnering with people who already have that value. They're not doing it to check a box, to make a bigger tent, to create better, you know, report photos with more brown people in them. Like right. I'm looking for people who have those true, deep values and lived experiences, who are then trying to create programs, practices, funds that are really going to leverage the power that they have for communities of color, and so. It's interesting in this time because as a consultant, like I my tagline is race, equity, environment. I always lead with race because I think a lot of organizations want to do diversity, equity, and inclusion work. And I think that is important. And I really am not interested in being a diversity consultant. Like I don't I don't think that's the problem we need to be focusing on. Right. I like to think about there's people dying. Because of these environmental discrepancies, like this is a matter of life and death for some communities, and all the resources are going to the wealthy white communities. Like it just it doesn't make any sense. So, an entry point for some of the organizations I've worked with is creating deep learning spaces where a cohort of people who are committed and motivated can come together and really examine these histories, these conundrums, these legacies, and really use a strong race equity frame to hold all of it. Mm. And sometimes that takes eight months and we spend 26 hours learning and coaching in group spaces and then taking that shared knowledge and shared analysis and then trying to build around programmatic change or institutional change from there.
0: Right. So I'm imagining it's a lot of, I don't know what's the word, the only word I'm thinking of is like kumbaya moments where like you're having heart-to-heart conversations about how race impacts an organization's fabric, how they make decisions, and how the people within those institutions uphold some of those more archaic racial perspectives. Is that correct?
1: I characterize it a little bit differently. I think it's more of a reckoning. Okay, yeah. So reckoning with the mythology of white supremacy, first of all. Reckoning with, like the sort of narratives and invisibilization of Native American communities, reckoning with how conservation and environmental movement have showed up vis-a-vis race. And then Looking at tools and program change and then building the relationships because this work isn't done in a vacuum. There's not just the one person right. who went to the racial equity leadership lab who's gonna then change everything. It's you need a team. You need people behind you all over. Mm-hmm. So it's also about building relationships and then looking at how we've internalized things, whether it's a white person who's internalized superiority, could be a person of color who, who's internalized negative thoughts about themselves. And then I've met people who are free. are like no i don't take that in that's not mine which has been an incredible gift of the work of seeing an example of what that could look and feel like Mm. so the internalized and then interpersonal institutional so looking at those four layers of how race shows up in the work and then trying to figure out how to disrupt it and build something better and different more beautiful
0: yeah so i don't know if you can do this and if you can it's fine is can you give us an example of an interaction that led to an aha moment with a client?
1: I feel like there's a lot, like all of them. So one of the things about my approach that I think is strong is that I bring in people with different voices and lived experiences. So I have a, a colleague, Dom Jackson, who works at Center for Home Communities, and he teaches with me and if I'm teaching somewhere else. I always ask him to guest lecture Every time. And he talks about the mythology of white supremacy culture and he just unpacks it from all these different points of view. And in the emails, it's always like, tell this lecture, like at least 30% of the people's minds explode when they hear this. Wow. Is it, he's able to tell the story in such a clear, irrefutable way that shows people who don't have necessarily a history studying African-American history or racism. It just lays it out to a point where you cannot unsee what he is showing you. You cannot, yeah. it's undeniable. And then I have a colleague, Shandin Garcia, who talks about asset and deficit-based framing These a the Native communities and just in general. And it's like people are always, it changes people's thinking forever. And for people who aren't familiar with sort of some of the things I shared in the beginning, the four windows into race and the environment, that's like just knowing that the, the conservation fathers were really invested in racism. Whatever part of that that people haven't heard is usually, like, a light
0: bulb for a lot of Right. When you gave the presentation on the Antioch webinar about the four windows of recent the environment, I didn't know about this Grant person, Madison Grant. It's like, wow, interesting. And I have a degree in environmental studies and we did learn about, quote unquote, these fathers of conservation. So I was really, really shocked to hear about this character and that he was endorsed by Hitler. And I don't know, it's just, yeah, that history is, is really shocking to me. And even more shocking is that it continues in some form of or, or the other that we see today. So what does change look like to you with the, the clients that you work with?
1: That's such a great question. I've been thinking about that a lot. And I think because this is like a long game, <laughs> that's an mm-hmm, no more yeah. question. And also a hard one to answer. But what I've seen is like an increased comfort, facility, strength of analysis, and speaking out and commitment to race equity and normalizing that language, normalizing that as a programmatic or organizational priority. Like I've seen a huge change with the folks that worked with the Nature Conservancy over the past five years. We're normalizing this essential life-saving central conversation which in the very beginning felt like a real wild card to even be bringing up. And then hopefully what the change I'd like to continue to see is resource and institutional investment going to the communities that are most impacted that have been the most ignored and partnerships where power is shared and where the larger green organizations are not dominating what's happening or colonizing space. And so I feel like that's what I described change I've seen as early steps towards that long-term vision. And it's interesting because these organizations all have their DNA. And mm-hmm. it's interesting. I'm curious about how far from an organization's DNA can it express itself? And I don't know the answer to that, but I, I wonder if the real change in the movement will come from Big Green. I doubt it. Like, I actually think it'll come from other places and maybe Big Green will just move slightly towards that norm. Right. As there's some pivot. Yeah, I think I'm at the point of seeing increased understanding and an increased institutional commitments. But the results on the ground are still, I'm still working for that and looking for that.
0: Right. It sounds like a, a trickle-down effect.
1: Right. I see it more as a trickle-up effect, right? So you get this yeah. group of committed people who are learning and gaining power and solidarity and analysis. And then they are infusing that wherever they are in the organization. They're infusing that in their work.
0: Right. I feel like that's the environmental justice grassroots movement and less with the what you call the Big Green Movement. Yeah. As you were talking In terms of like your theory of change, I was wondering, is there an opportunity for there to be shift in power dynamics in terms of giving up seats of power to those who have been historically marginalized? How willing are we, or from what you're seeing, how willing are white folks in giving up their seats?
1: That is such a great question. and. I would say overall, not very willing. Mm -hmm. And I think there are individuals who are looking at the history and making meaning of it and seeing that really the only way forward is for power to be distributed differently, which means power holders need to let go. So I think there are some leaders who are starting to see that. But at the upper levels of these organizations, I don't see that consciousness. Yeah. Generally speaking, obviously, there's always exceptions.
0: Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that is a manifestation of the kind of the white supremacy, the mythology of white supremacy that you were referring to.
1: Yeah, it, that's exactly what it is. I mean, it's the great, great, great grandchild of it. That's the tricky part, right? The board composition, upper leadership, how we do hiring, and then if we... Are lucky enough to hire someone in that represents a different lived experience. The institution still resonates with that culture. That was that's been laid out for generations, and and so, yeah, this is a long, long game. And yeah, I mean, this sixteen nineteen. <laughs> like I always think, like okay, four hundred years ago, the first enslaved Africans were were brought here. Like. It's a very humbling experience to do this work. It's very uplifting and enriching and beautiful, but it's also like the more I do it, the more humbling it is because of mm-hmm. seeing the depths of the roots of what we are trying to change and transform is something that I, I continuously learn more about and yeah. yeah, feel humbled by.
0: Well, thank you for doing this work. I feel like there aren't enough people like you so thank you for persevering. I know that it's not easy work, but like you said earlier on, it's needed and you're poised to do it. And I think you have the energy to continue doing it on a long-term basis, which is people don't wake up one day and they're like, I'm anti-racist. <laughs> you know? uh-huh. It takes years and sometimes not change, mm-hmm. right? But you have to continue to to stay humble and, persevere with the path that we've taken. The other thing is, and I guess it's just comment, is I'm just worried that some of this might be performative yes. Yeah. and that once us liberals get the president we want, for example, then we'll be like, oh, the work is done. <laughs> We're all on the same level playing field, but it's not necessarily the case, right? Even though when we had a Black president, like it didn't mean that we didn't have race issues to deal with. So... If you have any thoughts on that, I, I welcome them. But if not, it's fine.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, there's been a lot of virtue signaling. And I mean, all these people making these beautiful, declarative, well-curated statements about race. And I think yeah. I, myself and a lot of people I'm in this work with are like, I want to see what you do. In six months, in one year, where did you give up power? Where did you invest resources? In? I think there was a strong emotional response around George Floyd's death and police brutality, but that care and concern needs to be sustained and leveraged so that the police brutality against black bodies stops. So we're looking for results and I'm not super swayed by this surge of interest in in race equity. My response to it is a mixture of cynicism and hope that this is possibly a once-in-a-generation opening that we can leverage for the world that we want to see, but it's kind of in between there. And I think holding folks accountable who've made these performative statements and being ready to ask them and check back in and holding them accountable to to the commitments they're making and what they would need to do to make good on them is some of the work ahead, along with the work that we've all already been doing and are trying to sustain.
0: Right. So thank you for that. And just to conclude this, part of the conversation around your consulting practice. I'm not sure if I already asked you this, but what advice would you give to somebody who's considering pursuing a similar path in working with these big green or just more mainstream environmental organizations to raise their awareness and change in behavior around race equity and environmental issues?
1: I would say be true to your values. Be clear about what you're doing and why, and what you are or are not willing to compromise on, and collaborate collaborate with people with different perspectives, and stay grounded in community and injustice work happening in your neighborhood. Right. So that just like reality check, ground check, that works so that there's some integrity to the cause and the movement from a social justice point of view. Because doing it as paid work is different. Yes. And it's easy to capitulate to what you think the client might want. But I think maintaining moral integrity is something we all need to be keeping our eyes on.
0: Right. Yeah, that's such a good point. Just because you're providing a service doesn't mean that your service doesn't come with stipulations on the value and principles that you uphold. Yeah. That's really good. All right. So we're going to be going into our lightning round here. (laughs) So a series of four questions, first thing that comes to your mind, answer, if you feel comfortable, of course. Sure. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most?
1: I would say most recently, Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown, My Grandmother's Hands mm-hmm. by Rosa Manicum, and Hentified on Netflix. I love that show. <laughs> so but, Oh my gosh. <laughs> uh, Very good. Uh, yeah. Outstanding.
0: I can't wait for the next season. (laughs) Such a good show. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work?
1: I have a practice of, when I remember, dedicating the merit of my work for the benefit of all beings, which just comes from the Buddhist tradition. And Mm. hope, ideally, before I speak, if I'm in a sort of public context, and after I speak to remind myself why I do this and who it's for.
0: Yes. That's a good kind of grounding practice, taking back to where you started or reminding you why you started. What's the best piece of advice you've
1: received? Steve Chase, my graduate advisor, would say, Sarika, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a perfectionist in recovery, so like not getting paralyzed by things needing to be perfect, but just taking the best effort and putting it out there so that we can learn from it. Yeah. And just do
0: something, right? Oh. It's good advice that I hear often, but it's one of the hardest pieces of advice to actually put into
1: action. That's right. <laughs> and it's the good thing, I mean, there's so much that needs to be done right now that I cannot see any other way. Yeah. And we're, it's enemy of the good. It's like, not just do something. It's like, do something good, but it's okay if it's not perfect, but you need to get right. better. Right. Yes. Yes. What is your superpower? Okay, this might be nerdy and boring. (laughs) (laughs) I'm able to see connections. Like racial justice and the environment are inextricable in my mind. So my ability to see connections and bring people together to look at those connections together, I think is one of my superpowers.
0: It's a tangible superpower, I think, because people these days are asking, what does air pollution have to do with blah, blah, blah? What does this have to do with that? What does Black people dying or being murdered have to do with like, Environmental justice. No, it has to do with everything. Mm-hmm. And that kind of like intersection, interdisciplinary kind of aspect of environmentalism, I think we need to just go beyond focusing just on like the environmental aspect of it, just like the biology or the science of it, to like really incorporating the human side to things for sure. So, yes, that is a good superpower. <laughs> uh, thank you. So, as our conversation here comes to an end, how can we follow you on your journey?
1: So, I'm a late adopter Gen X person. So, if that is somehow a social media question, <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I guess. Or it could be like go to your website or
1: I do have a website. Yeah, it's com. I'm not actually on Instagram or Facebook, I've LinkedIn page, but I feel like I don't need to be followed. I just want to be together with everyone. I want to be in solidarity on the journey. So let's all do this work together. Like let's make this happen. Let's move the needle on this stuff and do it with joy and in beauty and in solidarity.
0: Yes, that's a good one. Is there anything else you would like to add?
1: just that it's a privilege to be able to do this work. And thank you so much, Sapna, for holding this space and creating this podcast and centering this work, thank you that so you're doing and it's been an honor to be interviewed on the podcast. And yeah, I just want to send love to everyone who's listening.
0: Thank you. And I really do appreciate you considering it and being willing to come on and tell your story and it really is making a difference. It's helping to create or add another voice in a space where it's often just unheard or not heard enough of. So thank you so much again for making time. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.